0: for your help to believe that you are with us in the fire and in the flood. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live like it. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn from the psalmist how to to honestly communicate emotions in a way that is true to what you've revealed not in a way that is unhinged or unfaithful but in a way that's tethered to the reality that you are who you who the bible says you are so lord we pray for your help and blessing now we pray that your spirit would teach us through your word in christ's name amen last night i've finished listening to a book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And in one of the final chapters of the book, he tells the story of a young man, a young young black man from Georgia, who had the opportunity to go off to to college. And, And this is set back in the late 1800s. The book was first published in 1905. And so this young man, he has the opportunity to go go off to college, and, and as he leaves, his, his whole community, all of the, 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 the people of his family, and extended family, they're all rejoicing that he has this chance to go and learn. And, and all through the, the community, they're all talking about what it's going to be like when John comes home one day. So they're excited because he has the, the opportunity to go away and learn and then come back and benefit the community. And he goes north and he goes to college and he learns many things and he becomes, he becomes a, a, a man who's, who's intelligent, who's learned, he's disciplined, he, he's, he, he's, he's improved in every way. He, his collars are no longer grimy, he's, he's become sophisticated and mannered, and then finally he feels, after seven long years of study and self-improvement, that it's time to go home. And he goes home... And he's appalled by how small and dirty and dingy and unimpressive the place is. And he comes back to this community that he's come home to try to help, and he's really disgusted with them. And they're not too impressed with him either because they can tell that he's uppity. And so as soon as he arrives, he offends his own people. And then, no sooner does he offend his own people, than he starts offending the white community. And, and I, I, t- I tell you this because we live in a world where even people of good intentions are constantly mangling situations. And in this, in this tragic story, he winds up trying to defend his sister and committing a murder and then being lynched. That's the kind of world that we live in. That's the kind of world that Psalm 44 is responding to. Psalm 44, I would submit to you, is about where we are as a church. And I don't mean, in particular, the decisions facing us or uh, the, 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 the questions that are before us in particular. I mean things like this. We exist for God's glory, and we are seeking to be faithful. And we're doing everything we can to try to obey the Bible and try to live for the Lord. And in so many ways, we can look around at our lives, even look around at the way that things are here, and feel things are not the way they should be. Things are not the way they should be. And that's what this psalm is is addressing. That's what this psalm is speaking to. So this psalm, I think, is speaking to where we are. Uh, As we approach Psalm 44, I want to observe at the outset that to this point in the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 43, all of these psalms are dominated by one person speaking. I, me, my. It's the perspective of one person. And then there's this radical change when we get to Psalm 44 where the thing is just replete with we and our. So, So whereas... The individual has spoken up through Psalm 43. In Psalm 44, there's an individual speaking, but he's speaking for the community. There are some singulars. Look at verse 6, not in my bow do I trust. Verse 15, all day long, my disgrace is before me. But everything else, the guy's speaking for the community. Our, we, uh, so forth. Now, last week, we were in Psalms 42 and 43, and we saw there that, that there was some defeat that had resulted in the speaker, the psalmist of Psalms 42 and 43, being separated from Jerusalem, taunted by his enemies, and he was cast down in soul. And, and that same defeat seems to inform Psalm 44 as well. Because here in Psalm 44, this, this one individual, he's speaking for the community but in verse 11, we'll see that the community has been scattered among the nations, so they're too separated from Jerusalem. The community is being shamed by the taunts of enemies. You see that in verse 13. You made us a taunt of our neighbors. And the community is cast down in soul, just like the psalmist of Psalms 42 and 43. The, the language of that refrain that you see, for instance, in 43:5, why are you cast down, O my soul? It reappears in 44.25. Our soul, and they render it here, is bowed down to the dust, but it's the same language in Hebrew. Our soul is cast down to the dust. So the the individual circumstances in Psalms 42 and 43 are now being experienced by everybody aligned with that, that individual. And I think we have to say this about about the community in Psalm 44, the community for whom this guy speaks. This has to be the believing remnant, and we'll see that from from what we see in this psalm. This is a guy who's speaking for those who agree with him, those who are walking with God with him. And and as we proceed, we'll we'll see this. Uh, There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to glance at that. We'll see in verses 1 through 8 that their present trust trust is based on past help. And then we'll see in verses 9 through 16 that at present, they're cursed, rejected, and mocked. And then in verses 17 through 26, we'll see that their present faithfulness is based on future hope. What we have here is that the desperate situation of the individual in Psalms 42 and 43 is now... It's now the common experience of the faithful remnant in Psalm 44. And just as we observed last week, this faithful remnant is also looking forward to the king who's going to be sung in Psalm 45. So look at, look at Psalm 45, verse 1. In the middle of the verse, I address my verses to the king. So there, there's this pain and sorrow, but they're looking forward to the coming of the king. And what that king is going to do is set up the city of God in Psalm 46. Look at Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's no river that runs through the current Jerusalem. So, so the psalmist is looking forward to a city that will stand after the, or 46.2, the mountains have been moved into the heart of the sea. That's the, that's the end time new Jerusalem. So, so there's, there's a certain um, trajectory here that's going through present pain and sorrow to the coming king, to the future city. But today we're in Psalm 44, the pain and sorrow of the whole community. Look with me at at Psalm 44 and what we see in verses 1 through 3, where the psalmist is speaking on behalf of of those who have been faithful to the Lord. He says in verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Now we're going to see what he's talking about in just a moment, but I'll just, I'll just tip you off here. He's going to be talking about the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the land. But, but think about what he says here in verse 1. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. You know what this shows us? This shows us that some people in ancient Israel were obeying Deuteronomy 6. This tells us that there were people in Israel, there were fathers who were telling their sons the Torah. There were fathers who were obeying what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 when he said to the fathers of Israel, these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And this tells us that there were some fathers doing it. And I would just observe here, The only kind of father that is going to teach the Bible diligently to his sons is the kind of father that has the Bible on his heart. And so this is a glorious thing. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. It it is just a fact of the matter that, that... Most adherents of any religion adhere to that religion because their fathers adhered to that religion. There are some people who are radically converted from other streams, but far and away, most people believe what their parents believed. So, brothers, this is an admonition to us. This is an admonition to us to be imparting the faith to the rising generation. Look at what these fathers have Reported. I mean, this is, this is giving us a window into a community of people where the fathers believe and they teach the children and then the children embrace it. This is what we want here. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You, look at the way they celebrate God here in verse 2. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Okay, so that's the conquest. They drove out the nations from the promised land. You afflicted the peoples, the peoples of Canaan. But them, this appears to refer to the people of Israel, you set free. You liberated them at the exodus. You drove out the nations. And then you planted, there in verse 2, your people in the land. This is partaking of that common image in the, imagery in the Old Testament about how the people are a tree or maybe a vine. And they're planted beside a stream of living water that is watering its roots so that it yields its fruit in season. That stream of water is the Bible, the Word of God. That's exactly what's being depicted here. And, and they're celebrating the Lord. Now, there's a corollary to celebrating the Lord. And, and so on, on one side of this coin, you, you, you lift up high what God has done, and on the other side of it, you acknowledge I could not have brought that to pass. Look at verse 3. Not by their own sword did they win the land. This is, this is a psalmist who understands Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses had said to the people, you're going into a land populated by seven nations all greater and mightier than you are, more numerous than you are. So think about that. One little nation, Israel going into a land populated by seven nations, all seven of which individually outnumber Israel. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. This is the most important thing about Israel. The most important thing about the people of God is their God. This is why all through the book of Leviticus, the Lord is saying to Israel, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And all leading up to the conquest of the land, he's saying to them, don't fear. I will go before you. I will fight your battles. You need only be still. Whatever you're facing, whatever challenge you've got, whatever question you've got, I need this encouragement. The Lord is the one who fights for us. If we belong to him, the most important thing about us is the light of his face. The most important thing about us is his presence, and he will fight the battle. Now, that that past help that's recounted here in verses 1 through 3 provokes and gives rise to present trust. So look at the way that the psalmist now in verse 4 says, confesses his allegiance to God. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. This is a guy who believes that whatever God commands is what comes to pass. That word that's rendered ordain there, you could translate that just as well, command. Give the command that your people who descend from Jacob, Jacob got his name changed to Israel, your people who descend from Jacob will experience salvation and whatever you say is what will happen. And then in verse 5, he picks up imagery that, that's common to the Old Testament. Um, you may remember how in, in Numbers 23 and 24, uh, it's said twice there. In, in Numbers 23, 22, and Numbers 24, 8, it says that... Um, that God is for Israel like the horns of a wild ox. Now, the reason, the reason they're talking about that is, is because these are people who watch what animals do out in the field. And when you've got a, a, a herd of wild oxen, what happens is that the, the males, they all get together and they, they have a contest to, to establish dominance. And one of those males, they're going to crash heads until one of those males has established that he's the alpha male and everybody else bows their head when he shows up. And so the horns of the wild ox, this is what the horn, this is what the wild ox uses to establish dominance. It's what he uses to defeat his enemies. So listen to what's said there. The Lord is among them and he is for them like the horns of the wild oxen. It's just another way to say that God is the one who fights their battles. It's another way to say that they don't triumph by the strength of their arm or the sharpness of their sword. It's a way to say that God is the one who who conquers for them. And then there are other passages, like in Daniel 8, there's this ram with a mighty horn. And he comes rushing across the land, and he smashes into this goat and defeats him, and then he tramples him underfoot, under hoof, we might say. Look at, look at what this, literally, verse, sa- verse 5 says, Through you we gore our enemies, like, like a horn, you know. Through you we gore our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. The Lord is like the horns of the wild ox for Israel. And through him they conquer their foes. And then he says it again here in verse 6. For not in my bow do I trust nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Now, what we have here in verses 1 through 8 has to be recognized as piety. This guy is appropriately relating to the Lord to his community, and to the enemies, right? He's trusting the Lord. He's rehearsing the scripture. He's a man whose father taught him the Bible. This psalmist believes, and he speaks for a community of people who share his beliefs. And that sets up the jarring and unexpected complaint that he's about to lodge here in verses 9 through 16. This is not the way it's supposed to be. What he's about to say in verses 9 through 16 is that God has rejected his people. And that can be seen in the fact that they're defeated by their enemies. Now, I think what this does for us is it, it, it says that the pattern that we've seen in David's life, maybe you, you remember this, this pattern. Um, you've got Psalms 1 and 2 where you've got this blessed man who loves the Bible and then you've got Psalm 2, where he's the anointed of the Lord, and the, the Lord has installed him as king. And then what happens in Psalm 3? We start reading about Absalom's revolt. And we start reading about all these wicked people opposing God's king. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and as you move through Book 1 of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, what you have is, is what I would describe as the pattern of the righteous sufferer. He's righteous. He's pious but he's suffering and and he's passing through all that suffering. And as you come to the end of book one, it's like he's finally come through it all and he's finally enthroned and established in his kingdom. And then book two opens and it's like the pattern of the righteous sufferer now gets extended to the righteous community. So the experience of the righteous man becomes the experience of the righteous remnant. And I think that's what's going on here. And and that would, that would participate in this, this relationship between the one and the many that you see all over the Old Testament. What, what the one righteous man experience, it, it can be extended in a sense to all the believers. And that sets up the relationship between Christ, who is the covenant head, and his covenant people. He is their representative. And what he experiences is what... They experience. So let's look in verses 9 through 16 at the way that the community is cursed, reject, and mocked. The reason I say cursed is because in the Old Testament, you've got these blessings and curses of the covenant. Uh, These promises that if the people obey, they'll experience God's blessing. But if they disobey, they'll experience God's curse. And and what the psalmist has described in verses 1 through 8 sets us up to experience or sets us up to expect that God's blessing is what they'll experience. What he's objecting to is that instead of blessing, they're getting cursing. So look at look at verse 9. He says, "But you have rejected and disgraced us." So verse 1 through 8 we're, we're pious. We're trusting you. We're hoping in you. But you've rejected and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Now, let's pause here and make an observation about what the psalmist is not doing. He is not engaging in theological speculation, right? So, you know, we could posit that perhaps what has happened to God's people lies in the fact that this believing remnant of which he's a member is just a small fraction of the wider population and the rest of the people are wicked and have incurred God's wrath. We could suggest that maybe that's the case. Or maybe there's some other explanation in the hidden purposes of God. You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey all the words of this law. So maybe there's something in those considerations are not the psalmist's concern. For him, he sees God's people should be blessed and they're being cursed. They should, they should be experiencing God's presence and victory in battle, but he's not going out with their armies. They should be experiencing the blessing of the covenant. Listen to Leviticus 26, verse 8. Uh, Moses promises here. He says... Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That's how they're going to go in and conquer seven nations stronger and more numerous than they are. But instead, the psalmist says, you've not gone out with our armies. And then Psalm 44.10, you have made us turn back from the foe. This is is Deuteronomy 32.30. Instead of what they ought to be experiencing as a blessing, they're getting this. As they lament the defeat of Israel, or the future expected defeat of Israel, they say, Moses says, how could one have chased a thousand and two have put put ten thousand to flight unless their rock, God, had sold them and the Lord had given them up? So that's what Israel is experiencing. Instead of one of them chasing a thousand, one of them... one of their enemies is chasing a thousand of them. And the reason is because their rock has given them up. Psalm 44, 11, he continues this way. He says, you've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. This is exactly what, what they were warned they would experience if they broke the covenant. They would be scattered among the nations. And then verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. What he's, what he's saying is that the people have been treated as though they're cheap. And instead of God's people being a praise and glory in the earth, they're treated cheaply. They're sold into the hands of their enemies, and they've become a reproach, and they receive only derision and mockery. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbor, neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. It continues in verse 14. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. So this, this bit about them being a byword, it's like they're a proverbial example. Look what happens to the wicked who deserve to be cursed. And what the psalmist is doing is saying, but we're not wicked. We're your people. We've been faithful to you. Verse 15, he says... All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So the psalmist is experiencing things being the way they shouldn't be. Let me suggest a way for you to apply this in your life. I think I think we have to take the psalmist at his word. We have to in other words, we shouldn't read this psalm and start objecting like, wait a minute. Israel deserved to get exiled. just, Just set that aside, okay? Don't think that way about this psalm. Grant that this psalmist is somebody who has a circumcised heart. The Lord has mercifully saved him. He's surrounded by people of like mind who are also walking with God. They love God's law. They love the Bible. They love the Lord. And, and you know, even if we want to do the wider theological explanation, but the rest of the nation is brought on God's wrath or, or God has a hidden purpose here, just set all that, side, that stuff aside and sympathize with the psalmist. And here's what I would suggest: When can you pray Psalm 44? You can pray Psalm 44 when the church is reproached in the culture. You can pray Psalm 44 when people point out to you ways that Christians have blown it. We have. You can pray Psalm 44 when somebody makes some snide remark about what else would you expect from those Christians. And and I think that at many points, you'll recognize, wait a minute, that's unjust. You won't find more loving, more forgiving, more helpful people than Christians. But that's not the way the world sees it. And you can make recourse to Psalm 44. And you can say, Lord, we love you. We rely on you. And you've rejected us and disgraced us. And the the enemy's taunting us and reviling us. And you know what you find in that moment? You find that the way the world treated Jesus is the way the world is treating his people. And you find, so if if we can put ourselves in the place of the psalmist you find that the way that you react to Jesus being rejected and crucified is the way that you react when the people of Jesus experience the same treatment from the world that he got. And the psalmist, he doesn't, he doesn't stay there. He, he doesn't stay in the lodging of the complaint. He does lodge his complaint. But, but let's notice some things about what the psalmist doesn't do here. He doesn't start trying to cut deals. He doesn't start trying to make offers. He doesn't give up on God. Look at what he says in verse 17, where we're going to see that his present faithfulness is based on his future hope in the rest of this psalm. Verse 17, he says, All this has come upon us, Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. So, no question, there were people in ancient Israel who broke the covenant. But this psalmist speaks for people who didn't. This psalmist speaks for people who were keeping the covenant. He says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Notice what they are on the inside corresponds to what they are on the outside. In heart, they're devoted to the Lord. Our heart has not turned back. And in action, they're doing what the Lord has commanded. Our steps have not departed from your way. Now, what the psalmist is assuming here is that God really is just. That's what he's assuming. And he's assuming that if he can make the appeal... To a just and compassionate God, things being wrong will be set right. That's why he's he's crying out. Look at what he says in verse 19. All this is true of us. We're righteous, verse 17 and 18. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. The logic of, of what he's saying here is the punishment that we've experienced, described in verses 9 through 16, was not warranted. It was unjust. Righteous people are suffering unduly as though they have been unrighteous. And again, we can say that in the midst of this, the psalmist is not teasing out complicated theological explanations. He, he's, he's presenting his complaint to the God whom he knows on a personal level. He's not making threats. He's not offering to cut deals. He's making known his plight and his perspective because he knows God. His conviction is that God will make things right. He has a bedrock, gut-level belief that God's steadfast love is on his people. Look at the end of the psalm, verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So in the midst of all this, he believes that God is going to defend his people because God does love his people. So again, he, he protests in verse twenty-one, verses 20 and 21. He's protesting that he and his people haven't forgotten God and they haven't resorted to idolatrous appeals to foreign gods. And the reason is that they knew that God would see and know and judge. Look at what he says there in verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. This is somebody who's protesting on his innocence. He's protesting that he's been faithful because of his awareness of God. Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, who could live this way? Who could, who could be faithful? Who wouldn't complain? Who wouldn't sin in response to being treated in this way? You know, the, the God of the Bible is a God who transforms sinners into saints. He really does. The God of the Bible is a God who takes people who aren't loving. So if, you, if you're thinking that way about yourself, what you're recognizing is, I'm not a very loving, trusting person. And that's true. You're not. You're not. And you won't be unless something happens to you. And that something is you beholding a love that is unlike anything that you've ever experienced. And that's the love of God. And if you will see that as it is, what will happen to you is you'll realize all these shameful things that I've done are really unworthy of me. And they are unworthy of the God who created me And I'm disgusted with the way that I've lived, and I've got to stop doing that. And if you'll turn away from that stuff and trust wholly in the Lord, that love that you experience from God through Christ, it'll transform you. And you'll become somebody who's ready to trust him, whatever happens. Whatever the circumstances may look like, you'll become somebody who says, I'm not going to cast judgment against him yet. I'm going to wait until all the evidence is in. I'm going to wait for the final verdict before I condemn the God of the Bible. And, and I'm ready to forgive people who may wrong me because of all that I've been forgiving of. You might even become a person, you will, if you experience this love, you'll become a person who's ready to say, whatever it costs me to benefit other people and to bring them to the Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it because there's nothing more important than this God. This is what's going on here in verse 22, where the psalmist, he's saying that the awful reality that he's experiencing has not prompted him to abandon God, but rather to cry out to him. So he says here, yet for your sake, because we've been faithful to you, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see the logic of what's going on here? We're being faithful to you. We're suffering unjustly. We're being treated like animals that are being brought to the slaughterhouse. And it's not just, but we're not abandoning you. This is not going to prompt us to leave you. This is not even going to separate us from you because we believe that you're going to set things right. That same... That same dynamic is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8.36 when he, when he quotes this passage. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Paul is talking to a community of people who are now experiencing what Jesus experienced. Suffering at the hands of the world unjustly. Suffering often for doing good, doing what was right. And yet they're not abandoning the God of the Bible. They're crying out to him. There's a visceral confidence in God's character and a belief in God's promises. And and that that gut-level reality prompts this response in verses 23 through 26, this confidence that God in the future is going to make things right. So when he says here in verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Think about the logic behind that appeal. You you see what he believes about God? He believes this. God is good. God is just. God loves me. The only reason I can be experiencing this is because he's not paying attention. But he really knows he is paying attention. I mean, he knows these things, right? And, And nevertheless, he's crying out, God, look at my situation. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. He's revealing a conviction that things are not the way that God wants them to be. And he's not exploring the reality. I mean, we could talk about this, right? There is a reality that I would say whatever is, is what God has ordained, right? Whatever happens is what God has ordained to come to. God is in the mystery of God's purposes, in the mystery of God's will for all the world. Yes, he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. psalmist is not concerned with that right now. What he's concerned with is, this is the way you said things would be, and that's not the way they are. So I'm crying out to you to set it right. And then look at what he says in verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Verse 3, uh, the light of your face gave them victory. Verse 9, you've not gone out with their armor. God's absence resulted in them being defeated. So the question, why are you hiding your face? Do you remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8? Isaiah says, he, he, Isaiah is experiencing exactly what's going on in this psalm. He's teaching the word of God. This is why we read Jeremiah. Jeremiah experienced the same thing. He taught the word of God. He was rejected. Isaiah responds on that situation in Isaiah 8. He says, bind the teaching among my disciples. So he's got a group of people around him. And he's saying, we're going to be the stewards of the Torah, the Bible. And then he says, and we will wait for the God of Israel who is hiding his face. This is what God does sometimes. For whatever reason, for his hidden purposes, it's like he turns his face away. And the psalmist is saying, why are you doing that? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And, and what, what you've got here, again, he, he's not consoling himself with intricate theology. He's not resorting to sinful anger. He's not unhinged. He's not just lashing out. What you've got here is a psalmist who's responding to his pain by fleeing to his father because he knows God's love. Look at what he says in verse 25. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Look at at our pitiable condition, Lord. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This psalmist, he speaks for a remnant that knows the Bible. He speaks for a remnant that has been faithful to trust, love, and praise God. And that remnant has suffered grinding defeat and humiliation. In response to them, in, in response to those things, he leads them in crying out to the Lord because they trust God's justice. They believe God's promises. They've experienced God's Chesed, his steadfast love. And they believe that God cares for them and that God is going to act to set things right. So, as I said a moment ago, up to this point in the Psalter, it's been David who has been experiencing this, this individual speaker all through the first 41 Psalms. It's David speaking. Lord, avenge me against my enemies. These people hate me without cause. And now... If at the end of book one, David is entered into his kingdom, having passed through all that suffering, in Psalm 44, the people of the righteous king are now experiencing a similar kind of suffering. They're righteous, and yet they suffered. So think about the pattern. David suffers, enters his kingdom. And then here in Psalms 42 through 44, there's a righteous community that's suffering before entering into the kingdom. It's going to be talked about in Psalms 45 and 46 with the king in Psalm 45 and then the city in Psalm 46. Do you recognize this pattern? Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his glory? And then do you remember what Paul told all those churches? Paul goes around, he's planning all these churches. You know what he tells them? Acts 14, 22 and 23. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus enters the kingdom having suffered. His people will enter the kingdom having suffered. The function of Psalm 44 in the flow of thought in the Psalms makes it fit hand in glove with the way that Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22 in Romans eight thirty six. This is exactly what we are experiencing. This psalm speaks to where we are, and I would encourage you to make it part of your regular prayer life. When you, see, when you see people slandering Christians, pray this psalm. When you don't understand why it is that the Lord is not prospering the gospel and making his people to be a praise and glory in the earth, as he said they would be, Pray this psalm. When things aren't how they should be, I think the psalmist here models a fourfold response. We can just summarize what he does here. In the first part of the psalm, he rehearses God's mighty deeds on behalf of his people in the past. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, look at verse 4. You are my king, O God. He confesses his allegiance to the Lord. He's not abandoning God. He's not slandering God. The third thing he does, verses 9 through 16, I I think he presents a biblical complaint. I didn't take the time to do it, but almost everything he says here in verses 9 through 16, you can root it in the blessings and curses of the covenant. It's like what he's saying, Hey, you said it would be this way, and it's being this way. You said we would have the blessings, and here we're getting the curses. So he, he rehearses God's mighty deeds in the past. He confesses his allegiance. He presents a biblically grounded complaint. And then at the end, you know what he's doing? He's pouring out his heart to his Father because he knows God's love. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. What wondrous love is this,